Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. It's more so like less than demonizing plastics, it's more about responsible uses of it and, and where it's ending up in landfill. I mean, microplastics are a massive problem. Like we're seeing it in bloodstreams now and things like that. Like it's, it is really becoming quite a prominent issue and it has been for years. But I think for us, it's really more so about not being a part of that and being able to upcycle it and being responsible about the materials that we're using. And I think accountability and responsibility are those two main words. It's not about necessarily sustainability, which has become a really big buzzword. It's about being accountable for the materials that we're putting out into this space and consumer goods companies really need to be a part of that because that's the use case. All right, Madison and Nick, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you all. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so I'd love to just start with, you know, some introductions and a little bit of color on the work that y'all are doing and how you got started in the space. Madison, why don't we start with you? Yeah, for sure. My name is Madison Savlo. I'm I'm chief of staff at Carbon Upcycling Technologies, and I've been with the company for just about four years now. I have a business background, so chief of staff is many hats. And in 2019, I started making some consumer goods with our captured carbon materials, mm-hmm. and that led to creating a new brand or a consumer arm underneath carbon upcycling called OCO. Mm-hmm. So it's something I've been leading for a couple of years now and going into many different consumer goods sectors and materials, one of which is packaging. And just quickly to zoom out for a sec for folks that are listening in, when you say, you know, captured carbon and, and materials, like what is that? What is the universe of what that means or kind of what's the high level of what that means? Yeah, I think sometimes being in the weeds, <laughs> I assume everybody knows what, what that means. Uh, in terms of captured carbon emissions, we take CO2 basically from point source emissions. So if you think of big flue stacks or emission sources from industrial industrial points, that's really what we're tapping into. And then we take that material and store it into a powder form. So this is, that's the carbon capture piece. And then we also do the utilization. Mm-hmm. So changing it into a value add product that can go into many different types of materials. At Carbon Upcycling, we're very focused on industrial applications. So things like concrete. Mm-hmm. And then with OCO, it's consumer focused. So a lot of polymer-based or plastic materials. Um, we're getting into textiles, inks and dyes. Uh, and then of course here, we're talking about packaging, but all of that is with the goal of, of storing CO2 and creating value add and products that can enter into the marketplace and really create more resilient products for, for just the general population. Got it. Perfect. Yeah. Lots to come back to in there, but want to make sure we also get, get you introduced, Nick. Thank you, Nick. So I am uh, the co-founder of a company called Element Packaging. Uh, we don't often always use the packaging, which oftentimes it just refers to ourselves as Element. Mm. We are a company that predominantly works in the color cosmetics, skin care, beauty care markets. Our customer base are the large scale, you know, color cosmetics and skin care companies, people like L'Oreal, Unilever. We have a strong bias towards sustainability. When we started the company, myself and my co-founder, almost six years ago, we had both come from very big companies that had the traditional packaging model for, you know, the industry that I service is to build cheap, but also large scale in the Far East, in China or wherever else they decide to build it, mm-hmm. bring it to Italy or to the US, get it filled and then get it you know, sold out through the Sephora stores and Ulta stores. And that was our business model. 
-hmm. We, for many different reasons, didn't love that model. I had, in my previous role, done numerous speaking um, you know, engagements, sometimes with Sephora, for example, and we were looking at ways of addressing the sustainability issues. And it, it struck me that they were, you know, the, I did a speech almost 10 years ago, and I could still do that same speech. And really, there's been, there's been almost no improvements. And I looked at it and thought, the, the only way that we can really do this is an improvement in really looking at getting away from what is the traditional model and then looking at material sciences. Mm-hmm. I met carbon upcycling that then subsequently became OCO. And I, I looked at it and thought, well, these guys are doing this in cement, concrete. Um, you know, why can't I do it in plastics? So I phoned, I got a hold of Madison's partner, Peter, and uh, I said, you're doing this. Can you do it in plastics? He's like, sure, why not? You know, conceptually, we can do this. Mm-hmm. So we started on this journey, what is it, a year ago now, Madison, basically? Yeah, and it's, it's actually interesting, too. Um, we actually, when we started the company, Carbon Upcycling, in 2014, we actually started in polymer development. So that was, that's initially where we started the company and then pivoted into the concrete mm-hmm. space. So when Nick found us on Material Connections, it was a great fit already because it was something we'd been developing for years already. And then now just applying it into the plastics and consumer goods space was a perfect transition. Right. Understood. So what it speaks to for us, Nick, is the beauty industry gets a lot of flack and it is justified for, you know, the amount of waste and the amount of usage that goes from, you know, mascaras is a prime example. You know, we as an industry... We generate a lot of waste, you know, and we have what we've done is we believe made some really serious moves forward to think about what is the actual end of life. Right. Mm-hmm. So my competitors, I have loads of competitors will talk about using certain materials and oh, they, you know, tout them as being much, much more sustainable and much more, you know, great for the environment. But they give very little thought, and I find this with many manufacturers, to what happens once they've made it. Once they've made it and sold it to whoever they've sold it to, you know, there's no consideration for where it actually ends up. Sure. If you look around, and I I believe that maybe even you, Nick, have commented that, you know, 10% is considered a good number. Now, plastic recycling rates are pretty abysmal overall. Greenpeace have issued a statement that says that we're not even getting close to 10%. Mm-hmm. It's half that in the US. Yeah. And quickly, before we get into more of the material that you all are kind of pioneering, like why are plastic recycling rates so bad in the US? Because Nick, I see you as someone who's reasonably knowledgeable about this. And I don't think the answer is just because consumers don't try or care. Like I know plenty of folks that do try and do care about recycling the plastics that they use. I would say that as an industry, there has been very little, well, initially, so, so the recycling, the MRFs, the material recycling facilities that are set up in the US, are almost all old. There was never enough money, I don't think. There was no money and there were no consequences for not recycling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there wasn't, they were designed to take product that, that could easily be turned 
into a valuable resource. Mm -hmm. You know, so I know that now there are loads of companies that are looking at lithium, you know, which has got, you know, the price of lithium has gone through the roof. So all of a sudden, everybody's looking at capturing lithium. Yeah, people know? care about lithium recycling all of a sudden. Right. <laughs> no one, you know, no one really cared about what these things were designed to do was taking glass and metal, you know, I mean, aluminum, for example, aluminum is relatively easy to recycle and obviously can be reused many, many times. But the growth of plastics, you know, in the 50s onwards was never accounted for when these many of these facilities were built. Mm. And there is plastic in itself is unfortunately so cheap as a virgin source that you're like, well, there's no point in doing it. Right. No economic rationale to recycle it. None at all. Yeah. And then when you realize, you know, and I, my company, we are in materials, we refer to ourselves as being materials agnostic. Mm-hmm. But the reality for a lot of products, there is no way to make them without plastics. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't hate on plastics. We're a plastics manufacturer. What we hate on is virgin plastics that don't need to be used. And we want what we've done, you know, we think is, and we'll come on to that in a second, but to answer your question, the reason why there was no recycling because there was no money in it, mm. and apparently there's still no money in it, mm-hmm. you know? unless you're doing something cool like lithium. Right, and as long as no one's trying to price kind of the environmental externalities of more plastic, then, as you said, because it's so cheap, there's not necessarily economic rationale to recover it. So let's get into how what y'all are up to is an improvement on the traditional model, why the material itself is also an improvement. I'd love to dig into that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I can share a little bit from the material standpoint of what we're doing on the back end. So I kind of referred to it a little bit, but carbon capture and utilization into basically a plastic additive or a nucleating agent is what we've derived from a couple of different feedstocks. The first is graphite. Mm. Um, So we can use low-grade graphite or we can use magnesium silicate. So also a low-grade version of that, which allows us to be pretty efficient with our costs just because the material is pretty low-grade and we're able to upcycle that and beneficiate it with CO2 that we've captured. Mm. So creating a carbon sink out of an additive that's very high-performing. And when we add it to different resins, what we're finding is that we do see tensile strength increase. And to next point, we, we do see some recyclability improvements as well. And this is all with using PCR. So we'll use post-consumer recycled resins and able to upcycle those so that they're, they perform better. They're just as, as strong, but they recycle better as well. So that's something that we're able to offer. And it, it's different than other sources of carbon utilization that are going direct to a resin. So there are companies that are able to do that piece. And that's great, but it is also more virgin plastic that's entering the, the cycle. And what our whole goal is to look at the environment holistically. And I think that's something that a lot, lot of carbon capture and utilization companies get thrown off by. It's carbon tunnel vision and, and to you know the extent of climate change, it's obviously really important, but we don't want to be degrading other aspects of the environment with waste that are going into waterways and, and into landfill. And so that's something that we've always taken at, at the core of what we do even though we do position ourselves as a carbon capture and utilization company. And then when it comes into the, the packaging side of things, being able to offer something better to consumers that they they can look at a piece of packaging and know that it's made from, mm. pay the word sustainable, but kind of more responsible sources, I guess. And that's really our, our end goal. And 
when we talk about our business model at, at OCO, it's really to become the Gore-Tex of carbon tech. Mm. And I say it like that because we're, we're a component company. We're not making the entire bottle, but we're making a, a component of it. Um, so when consumers see that, they'll understand that it is made from captured carbon. And this is something that they can feel good about using. That even if you know it ends up in landfill because of the way recycling facilities are structured, it's still something that has trapped CO2 and that at the end of days is, is upcycled waste. I enjoy the perspective of, you know, captured carbon is in and of itself almost like an additional waste stream, the same way that like plastic that isn't being recycled is kind of a waste stream. So you're taking a number of different potential wastes and waste streams and trying to figure out what's like the best possible or the optimal possible use of it. And I like how it's not just like, oh, we can use this as one place to put like captured or sequestered carbon because there's ultimately a number of lots of different folks thinking about like where to sequester carbon, but you're also improving the actual characteristics of the material. I think that's a big takeaway. And I also like the story of, you know, you're giving consumers a touch point to get them interested in like, okay, this type of work is happening. And this is a way for me to like appreciate something that I wouldn't have necessarily thought about, like carbon capture and utilization sounds kind of academic, but suddenly if you see like, oh, there's stored carbon in like the packaging that my mascara came in, that's a much more appreciable story. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's originally why we started with consumer goods. And I know when, you know, even in 2019, when I started making consumer goods out of our, just our powder that we had made from CO2, it was really around the idea of demystifying the carbon tech industry. Mm-hmm. You know, even a couple of years ago, it wasn't something that we heard about in the news on a regular basis. And now we hear about it almost every day, which is really exciting. And it, it does de-risk it and it and makes it more familiar for people. But people still don't understand that these are products that are not like, 50 years in the future, these are products that are being made today. And it's something that it is a physical project, it's something tangible and being able to give them, you know, a bottle or a piece of clothing or something that's made from captured carbon, even if it's just a small component of that product, I think really de-risks it for the overall industry. And it's a pretty important messaging piece, because that consumer buy-in and that behavior to switch to materials that are maybe a little different or non-conventional, is something that's going to be the big one of the bigger challenges to hit when we hit decarbonization and net zero. Uh, it's actually that behavior risk and that consumer buy-in that we're going to need to see. So that's mm. something that you know we're pretty passionate about and, and making sure that we have that story around waste to value. And I think the other piece I would mention too is that in addition to the upcycling of, of waste products, we're also replacing a lot of carbon intensive mm. materials. So to an extent, it depends on, on the formulation of the packaging, but there are additives that are already in plastic. So we do replacements mm. for things like carbon black or titanium dioxide, which are both really carbon intensive materials. And carbon black, for instance, is carcinogenic in a lot of cases, depending on the grade. So that's something that we can replace with our high, highly advanced materials. Got it. Yeah, that was something I was also going to ask about is whether there's some of that displacement, whether of you know some of the kind of chemicals or other additives that you just mentioned, or even like reducing the need for virgin plastic to come back to something that you said earlier, Nick, I think that's another really important lever is like, even if you're only displacing in any given packaging, like piece of packaging, five to 10% of the plastic, like at scale with some of the clients that you work with, I imagine that adds up. Yeah. And we've done, you know, numerous different formats. The most logical actually is probably in the first ones that's going to launch. Um, they'll be in the stores in February. Mm-hmm. They are tubes, basically. They're beauty tubes. They're done for a company called Cali Ray, which is a super cool, very sustainable brand, beauty brand, run by a lady called Wendy Zomner, who's the founder of a 
huge brand called Urban Decay. One of the main reasons why stuff in the beauty industry doesn't get recycled ever is just to the sheer size of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say, you know, we mentioned mascaras. There are millions of mascaras sold throughout the world every day. They're just physically not able to be recycled mm-hmm. because they're too small. There's size specifications about, you know, what the MRFs, the material recycling facilities, can actually pick up. Got it. You know, this is why Greenpeace are looking at going, you guys can't wish cycle, you know, is the phrase they use, mm-hmm. because they are not going to get recycled. So companies like Pact, um, which is a non-profit, great organization, as I said, we're proud to have been one of the founding members of it. They're doing a great job. They have take-back programs. You know, they started out in the Credo stores, which are, you know, several stores throughout the U.S. and Hudson Bay in Canada. And now they've merged into the Sephora stores. And obviously, we fully support that program. Now, if we can be in a system where we can take our materials back and help with that, that's great. Mm-hmm. But one of the real advances for us is we are using high levels of PCR. You know, people... There's going to be, there's California legislation, certainly. I think there's legislation into Oregon. So you've got SB 54 is by July 1st, 2025. I'm doing this on my notes. They're going to mandate that we need at least sort of 50, 60% of PCR resins in any of these products that are made. And for us, what we're doing is we're already doing that. We're doing it at much higher levels. We're doing it at 90%. But we found that with it, when we add in our, our products, we are actually making it substantially better. You know, you've got stronger, as Madison said, better tensile strength. But we've also got a lot of data. If we can get that product back, right, and that's something we're looking at, and it's not even if it goes in, if it goes in the general, let's say uh, polypropylene typically can get recycled about four times. Yeah. We found with our own tests, and also, I, I'll be honest, I've got customers who've tested it, they're getting it up to six times. Now, that to me is a significant, you know, impact. We are stopping CO2 from entering the atmosphere, sequestering it, and then adding it into plastic. Mm-hmm. So when inevitably, or 90% chance it ends up in landfill. It is inert. It doesn't do any damage to that landfill. Question for you, Madison. When you source kind of the waste materials or the captured carbon, is there, do you pay the folks that are kind of doing the carbon capture? Or is it more of like making it easier for them to find kind of a place to sequester the captured carbon? Because I imagine this is, you know, helpful for those companies as well as, you know, helpful for the material? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, but we, we actually do the carbon capture. So we're a full stack carbon capture and utilization company from a point source emission. So yeah, we're able to fully sequester the CO2 from flue gas and create that value add in product. But, you know, when we talk about direct air capture, so more on the carbon removal side of things, that is something where we could definitely partner up with companies and become a use case for them other than things like enhanced oil recovery or doing sequestration or storage underground. Mm-hmm. And as it stands now, is do the materials that you create come with 
a bit of a green premium to the folks that are using them? Or is it pretty cost competitive with the way that you've worked in the past? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. For things that are commoditized, of course, as with any new material company, there's commodity risk that's associated with that, especially for things like additives into the polymer sector, other spaces as well that we play in like concrete and, and cement. But for us, because we've been using such low grade materials and CO2 from waste emissions that typically brings us around cost parity, especially as we scale. There's some really great economies of scale with our technology where when we got, get to larger carbon capture and utilization reactors, I guess that's a, a black box term, but that's what we call our units. Once we get to, to larger versions, it, it really does help with the economies of scale and bringing that cost down to make mm. us a little bit more competitive. But yeah, compared to other companies, especially in this space, we are quite competitive with our pricing. And for your business, Madison, is this like, has getting into consumer products been a good way to, because I'm kind of thinking of like, how do we tie this back to like, whether this is helping you expand the like front end of the piece, like the actual carbon capture and utilization, because that's a great story to tell if like consumers buying packaging is directly helping capture more carbon. Like, is that kind of the way it's playing out? I think from the OCO side of things, we we tend to look at the environment more holistically mm. or impact more holistically, more from a material standpoint rather than just what's captured, just because consumer goods are so small, the materials they're using are small. However, the impact and the carbon emissions from them are quite high and the pollution just generally, especially when it comes to waste product like plastics in waterways and things like that are quite extensive. Even things like pollution from inks and dyes can become pretty detrimental for some communities and and so, yeah, we're really focused on making an impact broadly. And when we we approach consumer goods companies, the ones that are interested are ones that really don't have, you know, ways of switching materials easily. And that's something that we found as being a really big value add. Mm. Our material is very easy to integrate. Mm-hmm. It sometimes takes you know, even a couple of weeks just to do a quick trial. And that's been really successful in that turnaround time, not having to, you know, redo an entire supply chain for a consumer good company has been really beneficial in seeing the uptake and the partnerships that we've been able to create. And the work with Element's a prime example of that. So we've been, you know, doing a lot of trials and material testing and whatnot in the packaging space. And that's been fantastic, really quick moves. So I think that's one of the, the really big pieces that we can bring to a consumer goods company. The other thing that we've been doing a lot of as well is also assessing on a, on a unit basis what the LCA is of the impact of our material. Uh, so we've been doing this in the packaging space, but in other sectors as well. And it seems that consumer goods companies overall, um, just generally, don't have necessarily that information right down to the unit or what a product is, um, which I found quite interesting. It's really interesting when you get on a call with a massive brand and they just don't know what the impact of their material is. Um, of course, logistics are another huge beast that we're not able to really tap into too much. But just from a material standpoint, being able to offer that data and that information to them has been really valuable. Yeah, that definitely speaks to kind of that intangible of, you know, you're getting consumers interested or more curious about the life cycle of the packaging that they're that's like being used for the products that they're buying. And then that can in turn put pressure on the companies to be more conscious about it. It's interesting to hear you say that they're not even like, even in this day and age, like not necessarily doing that work until you start working with them. As you were kind of sharing that, I, the words that keep coming to mind also is like that plug and play nature of your ability to get off the ground quickly, like that resonates for sure. And it also ties into what you were saying, Nick, about that, you know, given that 90% of plastic ends up in a landfill, it's, like, it's not about necessarily always inventing or aiming for the best possible solution right away. Like, obviously, we would love if 100% of plastic is recyclable, but injecting some kind of practical thinking about like, how do we improve this and improve this quickly 
uh, that's definitely compelling, especially when, you know, I think about other potential solutions like mycelium packaging is really interesting, but it's just not quite there yet from a scalability perspective or from a green premium perspective. It's like we'd love if everything was 100% compostable, but yeah, sometimes you have to kind of take a pragmatic approach too. Uh, again, you're totally right, Nick. And we we work in, as I said, we're somewhat materials agnostic. You know, mycelium, I love that. And then you've got other industries that would, you know, like medical devices, for example, would never consider that. Mm. Whereas for us, you know, we can make food grade materials. Yeah. And that's probably going to be our, you know, second major order, if you will. We're quite a long way into discussions with companies that make vitamins and, uh, you know, health foods, that kind of thing. And there's your standard vitamin bottle that we've all seen you know, we see every day in our like, kitchens and our bathrooms and everything else never, ever, ever gets recycled. Mm. Again, mostly because of the size and like the material sorting facilities not being set up for it. Yeah. yeah. And then it raises an interesting question for me, which is, you know, what is some of the, I wouldn't even necessarily say pushback, but what questions do y'all get asked when you're in meetings with some of these people that are really like moving products at significant scale. And I imagine like their approach can be kind of transactional. It's like, does it check X, Y, Z boxes? Like what are some of the more interesting questions that they ask y'all when you kind of approach them with this novel material? Yeah, I'd say that one of the, the first ones, and um, this is across the board of pretty much any industry we've talked to, but it's definitely cost. Mm. So once we're able to explain away how we keep our costs low by using waste feedstocks, both on the CO2 side, but the, the feedstock side as well, that's, really beneficial. Mm. Uh, and then we can move into conversations about what the impact actually is. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things for us is, like I was mentioning, doing that unit analysis on the LCA, just for the material side of things. Of course, shipping is its own thing, but not something we necessarily have control over. And supply chains are already a bit of a, a mess and kind of tricky to work around. But with our ability to demonstrate the material impact, I think that's something that's really of interest to them. One of the, I guess, the not necessarily pieces of pushback, but some questions are, you know, why isn't your product 100% made from CO2? Or why isn't the impact, you know, 10 times larger than it is when you're changing out even just 2% of the packaging. And I think that's something where we get into conversations about being pragmatic and taking a progressive step forward. And a change today is, even if it's small, is still really beneficial in the long run. I think that's something that some companies get trapped into is that we need a change that's going to be 100% robust, and it's going to be, you know, a fantastic change in our supply chain, but it's not going to happen until 2030, which is a bit too late. Right. So we need to work with the technologies that are available today and make the steps and, and switches where we actually can and that are feasible. And I think that's the approach that we've taken when answering some of those questions about major impact, because you know, no technology is, is perfect. And we're also a startup and scaling up this technology in the consumer goods side of things. So we want to be able to demonstrate that, you know, today we're working on this and we have a great product available, but tomorrow we're also working on things in the back end that will be even better. So that's something that building those long-term relationships and really demonstrating out that we're being very transparent and continually working to improve our process and materials mm-hmm. has really allowed us some great success in creating those partnerships moving forward. Mm-hmm. And Nick, we're also not confining ourselves to the packaging industry. I mean, we've created this technology. We are obviously used to making packaging and we're used to molding. We're used to blow molding. We're used to doing all those, you know, industrial processes. There's absolutely no reason why we couldn't be putting this, you know, these products into other things that, you know, we made a joke. There's no reason why we couldn't make 
a sink, a carbon <laughs> sink. You know, that would be a good. Uh, that would be something good to advertise. You know, plastic <laughs> piping. You know that. I think the average American household keeps their plumbing fixtures maybe, you know, eight to ten years. Mm. Um, there's no reason at all why we couldn't be making plumbing fixtures that you don't necessarily look at all day long, and loading it with high levels of CO2. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also we've got a lot of data that shows the, as I said, the material strength. There's no reason why we couldn't be talking to the car companies, mm -hmm. you know, and giving them better plastics that are also using PCR that have been engineered, you know, to perform even better. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure car manufacturers would be excited about that. <laughs> exactly. And that, that's exactly the approach that we're taking. So, you know, in addition to the, the packaging work that we're working on with Element, Oko's got a number of other partnerships and product development opportunities within things like textiles and you mentioned automotives. That's absolutely a sector mm. that we're, we're focusing on and even things like like ceramics and concrete. And mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's such a broad array of materials that we can tap into just as a matter of being an advanced additive company. Being that component piece allows us to really look at ways to beneficiate other industries and other consumer goods as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like how we're kind of in this forward-looking phase of the conversation now. And Madison, you teased some of the things that you're working on behind the scenes. Like, but if I just set it up as, you know, where would you like to be in five years? Like, what types of work would you like to be doing or capable of doing at that point? Like, what does kind of like the future state look like, knowing that we're still kind of in the early innings of putting carbon in everything? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the main goal, right? So CO2 to value and really changing kind of one of our biggest enemies into a major ally. That's something we we use as a bit of a tagline, mm -hmm. I guess, at Carbon Upcycling. But for OCO, it really still stands true that in the consumer goods space, being that education piece for consumers around what carbon capture and utilization is, and then creating materials that are you know, widely accessible for them to tap into and knowing that they can rely on OCO to be vetting and, and transparent about what impact we have. I'll say it again, but we're really trying to position ourselves as like the Gore-Tex of carbon tech, where, you know, you see this logo and you know it's made from captured carbon and there is a sustainable source and sustainable, but, you know, an environmental source to, to what we're doing. That's something that's really important to us. But ideally, every sector will have some sort of a play in this. The other thing for us, too, is that collaboration is kind of, I guess, corny as it maybe sounds, is really prominent in the carbon utilization sector. Mm. And with our material in particular, because it is an additive, can be mixed with other solutions as well. They're not mutually exclusive of, you know, new resins or, or things like that. So on the back end, we are working on a number of projects that are hopefully wider solutions or more long-term solutions as well um, that can also still utilize our low-grade beneficiation cycling that we've been doing with the carbon utilization piece. Understood. Brilliant. Yeah, so to ask perhaps a more challenging or, or question here towards the end or to push you all a little bit, some folks kind of in broader climate circles see both or at least see carbon capture as kind of like a cover for oil and gas companies to continue business as usual. It's like if you claim that you can capture 95% of the emissions from a natural gas peaker plant, in some scenarios, that's a technology that just enables those plants to operate for another 20 years and for us not to transition to more renewable power sources. And in the same way, I think there's folks that might be listening in saying like, shouldn't our goal be just to eliminate plastics and use less plastic in general? Like, What would you say to folks that come kind of with that mindset or that framing? Like, how would you engage in a conversation with someone who's kind of more disposed to that opinion? I think there's, um, there's many layers to that, especially because, um, you know, plastic being 
typically a petroleum-based product, uh, especially when we're talking about virgin resins, and then also the CO2 emissions coming from a point source space. We're talking about our technology. I think there's a lot of overlap when we get questions about that. But from our standpoint, I mean, we're trapping a small amount of, of flue gas to create the materials that we're we're putting out into the mm-hmm. world. And for us, that's beneficial because we're stopping the emissions before they cause damage to the environment. We're not partnered with any oil and gas companies. Mm-hmm. We do tap into point source emissions, but it's not like that's anything that we're trying to, to propagate. But, you know, the world does need a chance to actually switch over from oil and gas sources and fuel switching takes a long time. It's also not something that we can really transition to right now because we don't have the widespread technologies available. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at things like the IPCC reports, relying on CCU is really beneficial because that allows us to really bridge to an opportunity to actually switch away from oil and gas, but kind of recover what we can from those low-grade feedstocks. So that's something that we've been able to tap into pretty well. And then in terms of kind of switching away from plastics and stop using it, plastics are an incredible material. Like it's something that I think has been demonized quite heavily, but it's not. It's not something that we advocate against. Um, it's just more responsible sources of it. So using those recycled goods and not necessarily looking for virgin materials, I think that's really how we're tapping into that. Yeah, I enjoy that perspective a lot. I think sometimes folks overlook kind of like the transition component of the energy transition or 80% of primary energy generation still comes from fossil fuels and getting that. I mean, even making a minor dent in that has taken 10 years and it's not to be pessimistic about the progress of other energy and fuel sources, but it's certainly going to take a long time. And I think that's also an important perspective on plastic. I do think it's been a bit overly demonized. Nick, you mentioned kind of like medical devices earlier. It's like there's some incredible applications of this stuff. And Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. When you look at it and people, I get this all the time, Nick, and I'm like, you know, plastic takes plastic, you know, and I'm, I kind of sit right in the middle because I can see, you know, I, I hear it and I listen to it, but it, this demonization of plastics, it can really sometimes, it just goes too far. And it's oftentimes coming from people reading these scare stories and just it being repeated a thousand times over. But, you know, two years ago with the outbreak of COVID, where would we have all been without plastics, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I think too, I think it's more so like less than demonizing plastics, it's more about responsible uses of it and and where it's ending up in landfill. I mean, microplastics are a massive problem. Like we're seeing it in bloodstreams now and things like that. Like it is really becoming quite a prominent issue Mm. and it has been for years. But I think for us, it's really more so about not being a part of that and being able to upcycle it and being responsible about the materials that we're using. And I think accountability and responsibility are those two main words. It's not about necessarily sustainability, which has become a really big buzzword. It's about being accountable for the materials that we're putting out into this space and consumer goods companies really need to be a part of that because that's the use case. Yeah, no, I enjoy that. I think that's the right kind of tone to strike is like the responsible. So how do we improve these like really ubiquitous materials, right? It's not just plastics, but it's things like steel and concrete, which are all over and have some of the highest embedded emissions in the world and carbon upcycling is already working with two out of those three categories and maybe steels, maybe you'll tell me that steels in the future too. But I think that's the right framing is, you know, these things are everywhere and they've enabled a lot of really incredible advances and how do we improve them in the future? Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if folks listening in are excited about this and want to check it out for themselves and get their hands on some actual material, where are the right places for them to look and find you all or, or keep up to date with what you're doing? 
Yeah, absolutely. They can definitely reach out to us at OCO. Um, we're not the best at SEO, so <laughs> kind of hard to find us on Google at the moment, but it's ococompany.com. Nice. Um, yeah, happy to provide materials and really even dive into more questions and answers. We love to be to be questioned and, and held accountable for what we're putting out there. Um, the other thing I would ask, I guess, of consumers too, is to make sure you're asking your brands that you follow to pick better materials mm. and pick up on what materials are in front of you and in your products. Brilliant. And so for us, we're on, uh, we're elementpackaging.com. We're on all forms of social media as well. We're not that difficult to get hold of. We would really like to hear from, we have a lot of contacts within the beauty and uh, skincare space. We'd like to talk to other companies, you know, mm. who are interested in working with us and OCO. We, you know, where we will win is, is when we do it at scale. You know, we've got, big companies looking at it now, but there's big companies in a lot of different industries that make toasters or make, <laughs> um, you know, waffle irons. And we're happy to talk to anybody, you know, from both. I think both companies, we're both happy to talk to anybody who thinks it's a good idea. We've got data. We can show it. We know it works. Mm. We're also the first ones to have done it. Mm. So I think that, you know, and our... The speed at which we've done it and the speed of our learnings off it are definitely accelerating. You know? Excellent. Yeah, well, congratulations on bringing something novel to market and gaining some good traction around it. One final question. I get a lot of folks who engage with the content and who are excited about you know, themselves potentially working on climate solutions. Are there particular types of folks that you'd like to hear from in that capacity, potentially roles that you're hiring for? Yeah, absolutely. I can speak more on the, the carbon upcycling side and OCO as a whole kind of taps into those resources. But yeah, we're just right now doing a, a fundraise and hoping to do some capacity building in the new year. So our website at Carbon Upcycling has a, a job board and, and that's something that we'll be posting to regularly. So on the engineering side of things, as well as um, business development are kind of like the two categories, I would say the new roles will be fitting, filling into. So yeah, happy to hear from folks there that are interested in joining Carbon Tech. Fantastic. And as folks reach out to me. I'll continue to make interest too. Well, Madison and Nick, it's been great having you all on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Nick. I just wanted to say I really enjoyed this experience. I love your podcasts. I love meeting people like Jason Cardiff. Very, very, very helpful. And you have a great set of speakers. I, I literally listen to it all the time. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Thanks so much, Nick. We're, we're very grateful for having you brought us together. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.